Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. So, Guy, Nick Mason, Sourceful of Secrets, of which we are um, two-fifths, right? Are, we're going back out on the road in the summer across the UK. We are. We're, it's all of June, so brace yourself. What's it called? It's called The Set the Control Store. What a brilliant name. Who do you uh, think could have come up with such a great name for a tour, Gary? I wonder. I think yeah. I'm looking at him, right? But then right. I did come up with uh, Nick Mason, Sourceful of Secrets. You did, and in fact, that came up in a podcast then because you were inspired by Woody Woodman's Is You Boat, weren't you? I was, yes. Anyway, anyway, but enough of that. So... Join Nick, Guy, Lee Harris, uh, Don Beacon and me as we celebrate the early years with, you know, that incredible, it's an incredible body of work, isn't it? The early Pink Floyd. It goes up to just before Dark Side of the Moon. It goes up to 1972, all the film soundtracks, all the Sid stuff, stuff you've never heard, stuff that no one's ever heard, frankly. obviously. Echoes is the big sort of, you know, uh, what is that? What would you call it? Magnum Opus. Yeah, I love a Magnum, don't you? Yeah, I never met Magnum. (laughs) (laughs) Um, anyway, tickets are on sale now and you can buy yours at uh, myticket.co.uk. And Kilimanjaro Live presents Nick Mason's Sourceful of Secrets, the Settler Control Tour. Hello, Gary. Hello, Guy. How are you? I'm all right. Um, although I haven't really got much to say today. I think we're... Um, th- this is going to be like a sort of Seinfeld episode. Where why, is, the- why is that? Well, I don't know. I mean, what is there, Gary? What's left? What do you mean? What are you talking about? <laughs> Sorry, I took a bit of a left turn. We were just saying, we were just saying what we're going to talk about in the intro. We haven't really oh, got anything. Oh, I see what you mean. I see what you mean. Well, well, I have something, which is I'm still making my album and no, we that's... haven't heard any yet. And um, no, I need I to get you down to play some bloody bass, right? Yes, you do. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But you're so ubiquitous at the moment. I, I am rather ubiquitous. I know it's funny. And it's um, so there's something I'm going to bring up with our fabulous guest today. Is that, yeah, because I, I do seem to be playing with all sorts of people, most of whom I can't say, because you, this, this is the funny thing. Until someone says they're doing something, you can't, you know, really say you're doing anything. I mean, like, I can say that I've been recording with David Gilmore because Polly puts everything up on the Instagram feed. Oh, uh, yeah, this is it, you see, because yeah. you don't, don't want to trip up, do you? And then, then you're uh, persona non gratis. Well, after, no, after... After my unfortunate incident when I accidentally leaked the name of the song that Jimmy Page was going to be doing with Leona Lewis at the end closing of the Beijing Olympics. Oh, yeah. Tell, tell the story. Go on. What happened? Oh, it's a bit, look, well, well, I played on... We did a whole lot of love. It was amazing. We did it in Olympic Studio 2 with all the amps. Just me, uh, the fantastic Jeff Dugmore on drums. And Jimmy did it as a power trio. And there was an orchestra on it that Philip Shepard had put together. And uh, then Leona Lewis came and sang it. And I had to sign this big NDA saying, obviously, you can't, you know, say whatever. No, of course, I'm not going to say anything. But then it was in all the papers. Jimmy Page to close the, the, you know, and I thought, oh, well, that's all right. I can say if he's they're saying he's doing it. But then I I wrote, this was before social media. I just wrote on my blog. I had a blog at the time and I had a radio show and I just interviewed Brian Cox. And I was talking about that. And I just said, oh, by the way, when you hear Jimmy Page play Leona... Not, and not fuck off, Brian Cox. Not fuck no, off, Brian Cox. No, no, the imagine if the oh, right. universe okay. was a giant Ikea bag. No, that one. Okay, yeah. Um, 
And uh, <laughs> and I said, well, yeah, when you hear them playing a whole lot of love, that's me playing bass on it. And of course, no one had said what the song was. So were you were you banned from the towers? I was the number one. I was yeah. I was banned. I had to, in fact, the next Dragons time I were saw sent it, out. It was Dragons. <laughs> but apparently, I was the number one item on Google News the next morning. I, I had lawyers calling me from um, from Beijing. Um, I, had, I mean, it was really, really, really awful. So Jimmy, yeah, was, the Jimmy su- was... in the Sun, I was the aptly named Guy Pratt. Oh God! <laughs> so was Jimmy standing in a pentagram, or was it pentagrams you standed? Pen- <laughs> yes, it is a pentagram. No pentangles. It, it was, and I felt awful. I felt terrible. Although, think about it. There's only like two or three songs that they were going to play. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Did he um, ever speak to you again? In, in... Yes. And do you know where it was? What, do you know he, where he, I meant it? It was at spoke... your book launch. It was at your book launch. Because I heard him speaking in tongues like a uh, <laughs> like a snake at you. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. That's, I had to burn a lot of sage before I came in. <laughs> but anyway, you made up. We made up, yes. Hey, so. God, thank God for that. So uh, so you had nothing to talk about, but of course you did have yourself to talk about, which is always nice. <laughs> you made me. <laughs> you made me. I made you. Um, Sophie Ellis-Bexter, she's on because of you as well. Because of you. <laughs> Sorry, I'm shouting today. Sorry, You are shouting. Ben. You are not. I'm not shouting. Now I am shouting. Um, so, because we thought it would be great, because this murder on the dance floor re-emergence because of Saltburn the movie, which is utterly phenomenal. I mean, it's been a global ticky-tocky hit everywhere. And you did you on- just say ticky-tocky hit? <laughs> <laughs> you played on the original. I did play on the original. It's um, and it's fantastic. But also, I mean, we should point out that you know Sophie is a mutual friend of yeah. ours, and as and indeed, and she's a friend to bass players. Uh, she's married yeah. to one. Married um, to bass player. Yeah, and we and she's fabulous, Sophie, and she's a great torchbearer for so many things. Yeah, and yeah, she's got yeah. she's got this sort of indie Britpop background. As well Absolutely. with the audience, and um, yeah, she does so much great stuff, and 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 yes, there is. We all say, I mean, it's amazing how how um, Murder on the Dance Floor has blown up after twenty one years, and it's just, and it's for me, it's just fantastic for to finally once be on a record to tell that my son actually thinks is cool. Oh, that's sweet. That's sweet. But her career has, you're right, and it's really developed. And obviously there's lots of, you know, there was Spiller, Groove Jet and dance stuff and her work with Greg Alexander, of course. And then and then later on, you know, the last three albums with Ed Harcourt. Very yes. serious, very serious and amazing lyrics on those records. And, uh, you know, I, I don't think the world truly knows what she does. Uh, and, and this might be an opportunity to find out. Let's get her on. Welcome to the Rock on Tours. Okay, guys, I'm ready. Well, it's a big tune for sure. I actually wrote that originally for Tina Turner. Of course, I had gone and found Joni Mitchell down in Florida and brought her back. I've listened to a few of them and they've been really good, man. I'm sitting in the back of the car coming into London. They're brilliant. That caused a big problem in the band, actually. I was having too much fun. Thank you guys for still being around, still making music, still being into it, and doing this podcast. It, it's uh, it's fabulous. Well, I get the feeling that us three should go for a bite. That's what I think. I'm in a band now. <laughs> it's called Roxy Music. You know this thing about the 10,000 hours of experience? Oh, yeah, it's it's get good at something. When we recorded Arnold Lane, we'd done about 50 hours. The Rock Hunters podcast with Gary Kemp and Guy Pratt. Keep on rocking! Hello, hello. Thank you Sophie. so much for coming on. 
No, thank you for yes, having me. In, in your in your clearly insane schedule. Well, you know what? I'm actually free for the rest of the day, but I think you guys are going to do a morning, so hopefully this has been all right for you. But Aww. it does mean there's no rush. We can chat for until you're happy. Do, do, um, but yeah, it has been quite busy. But it's all right. What? It's boring when people I, talk about being busy, isn't it? No, but I tell you what, <laughs> it, it, is, it, is, it is kind of important because you, I was just talking to my wife, Lauren. Of course, we, we've known you for many years. Yes. But you are one of the hardest working people I've ever known. And really? if you don't stop working... Plus, you got five boys that you manage and keep brilliantly and do all of those things. Spinning plates, obviously, is your thing. <laughs> but it's, uh, you do, you, 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 it's never stopped for you. Well, I think actually probably key to a lot of that is the fact that it did. Uh, but a long time ago now, but I was, uh, I was in my first band when I was a teenager and then we got signed when I was 18 and then dropped by the time I was 20. So I did have quite a big stop and I think after that was when probably it kind of crystallized this idea of like being you know really grateful every time there's things put in front of me to do actually because I know that it doesn't I don't like the feeling when I'm not working so I think that probably kind of sealed the deal for the work ethic really because I knew what it felt like to have it all go quiet that thing because that thing with that band with the audience because it was an incredible mm. arc wasn't it you're saying I mean, mm. but it's funny you forget when you're young just mm. how much quicker things are happening it probably seemed like it was ages to you at the time because you're getting like what weren't you enemy band of the year and yeah I don't, I don't know stuff. if it did for like, ages I think it more felt like kind of ridiculous because we had this very steep up and lots of hype and then a very steep crash down as well so I felt like in that four years that I was in the band I sort of learnt so much and I think it kind of laid the foundation for everything that followed just in terms of everything I'd taken on board and was watching and listening to and thinking about in that time so I think it really I wouldn't have approached how I've done the rest of my solo career the way I have if I hadn't had that experience uh, yeah, it was a big, a lot of learning in a short amount of time, really. Because I was listening to, I was having a, a listen this morning to the audience. And it's great stuff. I think that it's, it, they're kind of more like a sort of 80s indie band than a Britpoppy yeah. band. That hasn't quite got the, the one thing all the Britpop bands has had this sort of certain exuberance. And you're a bit more, you know, you're, there's, there's something slightly Morrissey-esque in some of your vocals and stuff definitely I but know the, exactly what is mean. interesting is you don't listen to it and go that girl needs to be singing disco <laughs> no you don't and actually that girl did not think that either uh, yes. you know I was very firmly in my in my indie world really and and also you know it's not something I'd been planning I, I started singing in the band because uh, someone said, oh, I've got a friend who's looking for a singer. And I thought, oh, that'll be something to tell my kids I did once. I didn't expect to find the thing that made sense to me in that way. So at the time, I think it was just, uh, yeah, a series of experiences, really. And I didn't write any of the songs. So I think I just sort of stepped into it and was kind of feeling my way a little bit in amongst, you know, what had been created around me. Because there was... It's not completely true that it was just sort of, it was an anomaly that should have been in the 80s because there were bands like The Sundays, wasn't there? That, yeah. That, that were yeah, around at the same yeah. time and had a very similar yeah. sort of connection, dream pop, really. Yeah, that's a good way of phrasing it, I think. And actually it's the mm. same drummer, Patch Hannon was in The Sundays and then did the audience as well. 
Did you write none of the lyrics? Because I mean, they sound like your songs. A pessimist is never disappointed. Sounds like something that you may have written. Yeah, no, I didn't actually. So uh, the songwriter is a guy called Billy, um, who I've kept in touch with actually. And um, I think he found it quite sort of inspiring to, because he at the time was, I think, about 30. And I was like 16, 17. So he was kind of going back into how it felt to be teenage, actually, I think. That was kind of the link. But no, I wasn't, not only did I not write, I wasn't very interested in writing actually at the time. I think I was just focusing on seeing what it felt to perform and to record and this whole new world and going on tour and all that kind of thing and just taking all of that stuff in. Because what came next was because you did actually have a publishing deal. Yes. So I was signed into a publishing deal. I know. <laughs> How jammy is that? Well, also, I, I must confess, I didn't <laughs> quite understand that that was what was happening. So um, when the audience were signed, so we signed um, as a band to Universal Mercury and then the publishing we signed. But it was only Billy and I that signed the deal. And I didn't quite understand what, what that meant, if I'm honest, because it was all brave new world to me. So I was signed into this deal. And then he... And then the band all split up and he went off and did something else for a while. So then the only person that kept the publishing deal was me. And of course, that sort of stayed dormant for a while. I was thinking about doing other things. And then they were the ones who received this instrumental of Groovejet. And someone in their offices said, oh, we should send that to Sophie. I think maybe that might work for her. Uh, but if I hadn't had that publishing deal, I don't think any of the rest of it would have happened, actually. Let, let, let me just go back on, on, sorry, Guy, let me just go back on the, the audience because mm. your dad directed the videos for that, didn't he? He did, that's right, yeah. He did the first three. So yeah. was there a sense, a sense of being chaperoned as well? You were being sort of slightly looked after? I think so because, you know, I was, I felt quite grown up, but I was only sort of 16, 17, 18. And I think my dad wanted to keep an eye on things. And also it was a, a skill set he could offer because he's a director. So he he felt like I could get involved. And I think my dad had always loved music so, so much and was always playing me music and telling me about band histories. And uh, he's very knowledgeable, lots of facts. He'd take me up to this top room in the house where we, where we were when I was little and had all his vinyl and he'd just pick out things and play me stuff and go, listen to this and how, imagine this moment when you first heard it. So I think for him, seeing me actually do you know, the thing of coming, you know, joining a band and going on the road and doing all these gigs, he was really like, ah, I love this world. And I think for him, directing the videos was a nice connection that we had as well. I noticed, because I noticed when you did Inheritance tracks, uh, you picked Comfortably Numb. Yeah. Yeah, because that was my first gig that I went to. Uh, I would have been eight or nine, and my dad took me. And then oh, that's that's with Guy. Hang on, that would have been me playing. I know. How funny was is it, that? Was that at Wembley? <laughs> yes, Wembley. Yes, exactly. Oh my god! Yeah, wow. yeah. And then again to seal the and deal. You didn't like it, did you? Well, I was a bit bored. I, don't I mean, you're a I bit wasn't... young. I mean, yeah. <laughs> I didn't quite understand what was happening because actually I thought the music was really exciting. Love did I? <laughs> <laughs> was there there was one re- was there one really annoying bloke stomping around over the stage? <laughs> yes. I just was confused was... because the music was really high drama and there was lots happening and light shows and you know inflatable pigs and planes and all sorts. But a lot of the crowd were just staying quite still and just nodding. That was kind of the max setting was a nod. Uh, which I now recognise was um, mass appreciation. But at the time I was like, why is nobody dancing? Um, so I think, yeah, I, I was a bit confused by aspects. But my dad was just loving it and going, look at this. And there's a light that comes out in a minute and it's brighter than the sun. <laughs> he, oh he was just so excited to sort of go through, see it through my eyes. Um, and then he took me again when I was 11. So my first and my second gig were Pink Floyd, yes. 
Wow. Because mm. uh, I must say, having, you know, knowing your dad is he, and he is quite an excitable person, <laughs> yes. I've actually been through the secret tunnels that go under the pavilion in Brighton Ooh. with him. So, yeah. yeah. You know, you know, you, you, <laughs> you, know when, you know, when I didn't know Guy, but her dad's work has been mentioned on this programme before. Really? That's right. Yes. Yeah, because yeah. Jean-Jacques Bernal was on. Oh, yes. And yeah. he shot he shot a little short with Jean-Jacques Bernal and Sarah Miles. Yes. I think it was called the Norfolk Coast. Yes, the Norfolk Coast. Yes. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah. My dad's passionate about music. Absolutely passionate. So, yeah, um, that's. That's a big part of my kind of early musical education was through my dad, definitely. And what about your mum? Obviously, she was a TV presenter, you mm. know, famously on, on Blue Peter. And uh, did, So this is a showbiz family in a way, I guess, isn't it? A very the, No, no, let's not say that. It's, it's a family that's really interested in performance and the arts. Yeah, definitely creative, more heavily on the television side. So um, my, my dad, my stepmom, my stepdad, my grandpa were all involved in the production side of TV. And then my mum, yeah, had gone to drama school and then ended up presenting. And I think the biggest gift that that gave me was actually not thinking of any jobs as being on a different level to anything else. So when I thought about singing, it wasn't like, well, I have to kind of get, you know, a, a normal job or there's music somewhere over here in the ether. I could sort of see how, how it might work in a more, I suppose, a more like achievable practical sense, really. And they didn't freak out too much when I finished my A-levels and then didn't go off to university but I went um and on the enemy brat buster actually <laughs> and they, they definitely could have said what that's not the plan but they were they were pretty supportive of all of that and I think that was an amazing thing that they were like that so did you get to go to the Blue Peter Garden when you were little? Oh, yeah, all of that. Yeah, that was very much part of my childhood. My mum... Did you, and did, did, you must have grown up in a house that was just full of sticky back plastic. Yeah, well, I was always hoping and, she'd bring home the mates. squeezing bottles. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That was the big hope, that she'd bring home what she just made on the telly. So um, Things without brand names. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> was, yeah. Um, so, yeah, she was presenting Blue Peter when I was uh, four till when I was eight, which is also the time that... Um, so my my dad and my mum split up when she started pretty much around the same time. And then she'd met my stepdad, John, when I was seven. So that majority of that time was also my mum and my dad being single parents, which I think is significant because it meant that all of that was a lot more sort of intense, I suppose, because it was just me and my mum. So Blue Peter always felt weirdly like a sibling, which I know sounds really strange, but it was like a relative in my house. You know, all of it was so familiar and ever present. Wow. And it's amazing because, you know, I'm I'm much older than you, but Blue Peter still has that memory for me as well. Yeah, it was massive. It's, yeah, and there, yeah. there weren't you know there's only four channels back then. You know, so yeah, it was. Sorry. Do you watch Blue Peter or do you watch four? Yeah. We had two. Yeah. Guy and I had <laughs> two. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's still funny to think back though, isn't it? And my mum, I think this is really impressive. There was no auto cue then, so she would get the script the night before and have to learn it, ready to do the live broadcast to 12 million people, having learnt the script off by heart. I always wow. find that a really amazing thing about my mum. Wow, that's amazing, because they never dropped a beat. No, they were so I, good. I don't remember anyone, yeah. Yeah, but, so but, professional. But, but obviously Pink Floyd was given to you by, by, your, by your dad, but what yes. was the sort of, what was the, the, the music that you found that became your own? Was there any, that was there's that moment of rebellion, if you like, or, or yeah. this is identity? Very much so, yeah. So, and I would say my mum was also giving music, more sort of the musical side and Paul Simon and, yeah, there was lots. There was music in both households, basically. But for me, when Britpop happened in the mid '90s, that marked this massive shift where I was like, "Ah, this isn't music that's being handed down. This is aimed at me." You know, I get this, and I 
I stepped into it wholeheartedly. I absolutely loved it. It was such a defining era and so exciting because also I was growing up in London. So, you know, bands that were coming to the city, I, I knew, you know, I could, I could feasibly, if I timed it right, you know, go to the venues or see them in the pub around the corner and things like that. So it all felt exciting and, yeah, really vibrant. Were you Blur or Oasis? <laughs> I actually liked both. I did like both. I mean, I suppose... No, you didn't. No, you didn't. Come on. You can't <laughs> I definitely fancied no more of did. Blur when I was a teenager, for sure. No. But I think, uh, yeah, I think I think for me, Blur is kind of... Yeah, I, actually, I was going to say it stood the test of time, but actually I heard uh, Live Forever the other day and it's still such a beautiful bit of music. What, what a great song to hear when you're like 14, 15 and yeah. you're, yeah, you're making yeah, those yeah. friendships that last a lifetime. Like that yeah. is incredible. It's such a romance in it, isn't there? Noel could write an anthem for sure, but you ended up working with Alex. James, I did, didn't you? yeah. Yes. How yeah. was that? How was that? It was great because I think so. That's sort of a good example as well of how when I found myself a solo artist making pop music, I still wanted to keep my indie roots really. So I ended up basically writing a list of all the people I'd ever liked and and writing with them. So uh, yeah, I worked with Alex. I remember writing songs with Path and the Wanna Dies and. Um, yeah, just I just would think right outside the box. It wasn't just about pop writers; it was about people where their music had really meant something to me. Groove Jet, that was where I was introduced to you. You know, yes. well, yeah, that's where everyone was, and it's still that that that's like a that is. I mean, it, like murder is now, but it, it it it's a sort of all time earworm. That one, isn't it? It's like well, because it's hard for me to be objective. Knows that one. I've definitely been singing it a long time, but happily, I still really like it. So, I think that song is the song I credit with sort of changing everything. Not because, not solely because, I mean, I'm sure it's significant that it was successful, but it was more about a mindset change for me because I'd come from, you know, this indie band that had broken up. The indie press were being pretty hard work on me at the time. I wasn't feeling particularly happy in that world. And so when this dance track came my way, because now we're so used to people cross-pollinating genres, but then that was not the case. It was very much sort of stay in your lane. So to go from indie to... Ibiza was really yeah. extraordinary. And I also did it thinking that the, that indie world would never know I did it. It was that it was that separate in my head. So I just thought, I think this will be good for me to do something other. And through that, I realised I did actually really like aspects of dance music because at first I thought I didn't like dance music as well. Um, and I thought, actually, no, I do. And there's a skill in DJs and the story they tell. And hang on a minute, why don't I go back this song's been sampled from a 70s song. I want to know more about that. I want to know about disco. I want to know about the storytelling that's in those vocals from those incredible vocalists of that era. And that's where I got really excited about about disco, I think. Yeah. Yeah, because I mean, the, very, the fact that, that hook that you come up with is so you're clearly meant to be writing that sort of thing because it's such a perfect... I am a pop but, kid. Uh, but like you said about their things being very much a sound, because remember that, sort of sits in with the other really big one was music sounds better with you oh yes yes isn't it at the time and that th those are things i was sort of pigeonholed together yeah yeah well, there were as, lots of amazing right. records you know yeah. yeah and it's also the time when um dance went commercial because before that house and um garage and music had been kind of quite still quite fairly cult and then suddenly in 2000 it tipped over into People, you know, hearing those songs on Radio One and on adverts and things like that, that's when House went really commercial. So I was kind of riding that wave a little bit and experiencing it. But it's but funny. Did, but, sorry. Just talk, talk about how that, that record came into your life and what you, and, you know, the story of you meeting him and, and mm. singing over that. 
Well, at first I was really offended that I'd been sent it, if I'm honest, because <laughs> <I'd>, um, <laughs> this is back in the days of uh, getting a CD in the post. So I sent this, um, this CD with the instrumental of Groovejet on it. And I put it in my little home ghetto blaster. <laughs> and uh, I had a listen. I was like, oh, I can't believe they're sending me a house track. This is so offensive. I'm an indie artist. How dare they? And I think I stopped it halfway through and kind of threw it across the room. I was just like, <laughs> nah. And then a couple of weeks later, I was tidying up my flat and I found this CD. And I was like, what's that again? I put it on and I thought, oh, you know what? There's something in this I quite like, actually. And at the time, I was managed by a guy called Martin Hall. So he managed um, the audience and he also managed and still does the Manic Street Preachers. So again, still very much part of that indie world. And he was on holiday. So I phoned up um, the number that had come through with this CD and it was a guy at EMI, Positiva. And I went for a meeting on my own while my manager was away. And then when he came back, I said, I went for a meeting about this song and I actually think I'm going to do it. And when the song came out, so it was released on a Monday and on the Tuesday, Martin met me for a drink in Camden and said, I'm, I can't manage you. I wish you all the best, but I don't understand what you're doing with this song at all. Wow. And I think that's that really shows you again how sort of separate all the genres were at wow. that era. Wow, yeah. That's amazing, isn't it? So when the song charted, I had no manager, no record label, um, no plan, actually. <laughs> but it was quite exciting because I'd come yeah. off the back probably, of this failure. You probably ended up making like, more money and having more success. But I, I think what made that record so so different and so big was you're, you're, you still had an indie voice. You, you didn't <laughs> just sing it like all those other singers did with their you know on their dance records you, you still had a very english quality about you and uh, i remember buying this record sophie really and, uh, well i got the cd yeah i mean i thought uh, it was a great great record i got you. the cd and uh and i took it back and my my boy finn at that time i don't know what year was this 97 2000 so he's 10 right and i remember having it and um and he looked at it and he said she's very pretty dad i went yes yeah, she is she is very pretty yeah yeah and the next day I came down and he'd taken the CD and he'd scrubbed your face out with an ink pen. Oh, <laughs> what had I done worried. to upset him? Because I said you were pretty as well. <laughs> and he, felt, he was like, oh my God, you know. Oh, wow. He, he, was being, he made he was, him feel was, weird about it. He was, trying to, he was trying to protect me from... <laughs> that reminds me of like when um, Jamie Oliver was just releasing his books and I remember saying to my boy Sonny who's now nearly 20 I went oh I love Jamie Oliver and then he was really like this is terrible but you're married to daddy how dare you say you love another man (laughs) (laughs) same sort of feeling I probably but it's it still works that song I mean I played it on stage with you uh yeah uh, once and um I mean it's 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 kind of timeless isn't it it's well if it is then I I don't think that's any credit to me I think that taking that sample is so clever the original song love is you uh, by Carol Williams is is a lovely song, but the strings are just so lush. And I think, you know, there's so much soul and heart in the musicianship of songs that were recorded in that time. So you get that, that the sort of essence of that in the recording and then put it with, you know, the, the sort of freshness and re- reincarnation of it. I think it kind of gives it automatically a little bit of a soul really. And so many dance records that I really love have done the same thing where they've taken a sample so it's kind of got something already that gives it character yeah 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 but I and it's the thing is that I I, what Gary was saying like about the I would say with the vocal 
is that most of the dance records of that time, which were based around a sample, and there'd be one vocal hook, mm. right, one repeated vocal hook, yeah. which was usually at a pitch of sort of hysteria. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what I mean? <laughs> Oh, that was you. Oh, that was you. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, well. So it was the complete opposite of that. Well, I definitely came at it with my, you know, the way I'd always thought about music. So I was like, well, there's verse one and then you've got verse two and you've got to have a middle eight. I definitely wanted all those things in there. And um, I think, you know, much to the PR for Groove Jet's, pain I kept saying in interviews I don't like dance music but it's because I didn't know that world I didn't really know what the rules were or how the form was I just knew what I liked and what how I came at things so but also coming bring, from isn't indie, it? You bring, yeah coming cu- becoming from indie the whole the whole thing of of like of how you talk to the press is saying you don't like things you know definitely like whole, oh my god model, isn't it it's like it's so true. Every, everything's shit what I do shit what everyone it's so true that is so <laughs> true <laughs> did, you, did you you sang you sang with the Mannix did, didn't you at one yes point? I did a I sang on the on the B side um, a song called Black Holes for the Young yeah uh, because of our yeah we had this the same manager so I used to see them around and in fact I saw in the Millennium watching them play at Cardiff Millennium Stadium uh, so yeah they were very much part of part of what I was up to in the sort of late 90s really our second guest we've had on the who's sung with the Manic Street Preachers who was oh. that who's the first the Anchorette oh yes of course yeah of course of course of course yes of course. Sorry, I, I knew that so with Read My Lips mm. that was in a way that was I mean, your life had changed and suddenly were people yeah. pushing you at songwriters because there was this kind of moment, wasn't there, when every, everyone had to write with a with a hundred other people to make an album. There was, yes. It wasn't, which we get, we'll get onto, where you're just with one producer. It mm. was this thing of having multi-produced records. Well, also, yeah. just like, like, Greg Alexander was, like, huge yeah. at that point. A brilliant pop writer, Greg, and I'd obviously come off, you know, he had success with his own band too, with the only Get What You Give and New Radicals yeah. and... Oh my but, God, yeah, the pop Which thing. I still love. Do you know what I love? Because he's basically, he's basically Todd Rundgren. He that's is. kind of what his writing is. Yeah, that, yeah. I, no, I, I love it too. Love he's that. very love open-hearted, that. actually, when he writes, which I really like. It's quite sort of puppy dog, like, hey. Um, but I think I found myself a solo artist completely by default. So... I, I'd lost my band, which made me, therefore, a solo artist. So when I came to do my album, I just remember thinking, I have to seize this with both hands. And having the band fall away and, you know, being able to sort of work out where the blame lay, I'd had a sort of moment where I thought, I don't ever want to be doing that ever again. I, I need to be able to take responsibility for what I get up to from here on in so that if it all doesn't work out, it's on me. So I think... That making that album was incredibly exciting, but there was definitely a part of me that stayed quite sober because I thought I really, I really don't want to get this wrong, and I want to make the album that really represents me. And obviously, you don't make it; it's never like 100% perfect with that. But it was an experience where every time I worked with someone I liked, I clung on to them a little bit. And actually, there's so many people I work with now that I still work with from that time, which is really lovely. So it means, you know, now I've got these very long relationships, but literally the woman who filmed my video for Take Me Home, Sophie Muller, I still work with her. People who did the artwork, people who did my hair and makeup and a lot of the writers as well. I've just kept those threads going because I was like, ah, I've fallen on my feet with you, 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 you. Right. 
cling together and then it stays communal. Yeah. Not, not me, though. <laughs> <laughs> hey, you've done more than one thing with me. Come on, cheeky. Okay. I'm checking. <laughs> for, for, for a young girl, right, which you probably, you know, you were at the time, I mean, mm. suddenly sort of doing this speed dating writing, yeah. going to all these different studios, mostly with men, right? Yeah, Mo, definitely. Moby and Greg. and Was that really challenging? Well, the men, the sort of maleness aspect, I'd already been experiencing that for a while because the enemy brat boss tour that I mentioned that I did when I was 18 straight out of school I was the only girl on the tour like all the out of four acts on the bill I was the only girl so I'd I'd already had to kind of get my head around that which I might add coming from an all-girls school like just previously was definitely a bit of a shock to the system and I who don't was, who were the other acts uh stereophonics Asian dub foundation and the warm jets so yeah, that was already something that I found a little bit challenging. I just wasn't that used to male company like that. I didn't really have any male friends. I didn't have a a big brother, nothing like that. So that was already my you know, experience. So by the time I got to the pop world, I, that, that felt a little bit more, that was so much the norm. I don't think I even thought about it, but I definitely found the kind of committee aspect of songwriting and and also, you know, I'd write a load of songs and then I'd think to myself, right, I want to I wanna play them to the label with no prejudice. I don't want them to know who I wrote these songs with. But it didn't matter that I thought that because whoever I'd written with would already have sent it over to the label already. So they'd already know. And I felt like everything was so attached to pedigree and name and, you know, the who's who. And I just found that all a bit, a bit icky, really. But mm. through it all, I did, I did definitely work with people that I was having a nice time with. And some people I thought, you know what? The way you write is not for me. And in fact, there was some writers I worked with that were very good at writing pop songs but it was so joyless that when we came to they said oh let's do another one I said you know what I can't write like that you know right. if I'm going to make pop music and dance music I need to be happy and dancing around the room at the end of the session so if we're not doing that I'm out. So, so you arrive and they've normally got a backing track already or do you coming up from scratch in the room? What's- uh, a mixture I think I mean, so for example, out of the four singles, you've probably got a mixture of everything. So there was a song, so Move This Mountain, um, which is one I did with Alex James. So I think that one, he had um, some chords and I started doing the so I do top line mainly. So writing at the top, Music Gets the Best of Me was a song I wrote with um, Matt Rowe and Greg Alexander, all of us in the room. So we start from nothing and just build Great. it from the ground up. And then songs like Get Over You uh, and Murder had a, had a kernel of what they were and then... I would meet them at a certain point and then I'd, you know, get involved. And uh, like with Murder, Gen- Greg was very generous and said, right, I've got, this is as far as I've got. And if you can finish it, then it's yours kind of thing. Uh, so that was how I met that song. And then Take Me Home was a cover of a share song that I kind of reworked a little bit. But, but the original is so glorious. I was like, I have to have Yeah, that. but you changed the lyrics, didn't you? Did How did that go down? Well, I changed the lyrics. Um Okay, it's, bit, <laughs> it's quite funny this. So basically, I'd never written before Groove Jet. So Groove Jet was the first thing I'd written. And then I realised, oh, actually, I quite like writing. And not only do I quite like it, I think it's quite important because it means that it potentially sends out a message to people that maybe there's a little bit more to me than just, you know, here's a song, get on that stage and sing. You know, you've got a little bit more authority, a little bit more say. So keen to set myself out as, you know, a more serious kind of pop star, please. I... I, I tell <laughs> I tell a fib basically that uh, with my reworked version of Take Me Home, I said that Cher had heard my version and didn't like it. None of that was true. I've literally got no idea if Cher's ever heard my version of Take Me Home or not. I just thought, well, at least that way people will know that I song wrote some of these lyrics. 
but the puppets are great. That's very savvy. That's that's the sort of thing Madonna would have done about the the Pope's excommunicated me. Yeah, Yeah. (laughs) I just thought I'd try it. I told one journalist, and it just like flew, and I was like, "Oh, that's quite fun." (laughs) (laughs) It's definitely a giggle. Before we get on to Guy's entrance into this story, oh, yes. he's, he's waiting patiently in the wings. I can see he that. Is. Now. Revving, revving up. <laughs> he's already got his, his makeup and his ruff on. Bass guitar just slightly out of the vision. Spear in hand. Because um, Moby also hunted you down, didn't he? Apparently he was like desperate to work with you as well. It was a, Yeah, that was, I was quite, I mean, I loved working with him because he had some amazing sounds. So I flew over to New York. He played me a load of instrumentals and one of them, it was like this snowy time in New York and I was in my hotel room looking out and I could see all these little windows little rooms and I thought so I wrote this song sort of thinking about peering into all these little windows so it was a song called Is It Any Wonder but then he kind of confused me because then he didn't, he didn't want to have Moby written on the credits he wanted his name Richard Hall which is his real name so I was a bit like oh I, I thought you were happy to be involved but uh. I don't know I haven't seen him again since but I think he's definitely talented I mean his at the time his um, album play was absolutely everywhere and uh, yeah yeah, it was, it was kind of a mixture of exciting yeah. and also a little bit lonely because I was travelling around a lot. So I would go there or I'd go to Sweden or wherever I was heading off to songwrite. And then you'd find yourself, you know, at the end of the day, just on your own back in the hotel room with no one to play with. And you're like, ah, is mm. this OK? Am I having a nice time? Probably, possibly. <laughs> yeah. It's funny you say about Sweden because there was a thing because you know this there was this period where we were all we were all writers like mm. everyone was just trying to get on the pop songwriting bag mm. and there was so much Sweden action everyone yeah. was Swedish yeah I mean my my publisher actually joked to me that I should maybe change my name to Guy Geis <laughs> just to- well look you know Sweden has a long running you know legacy of of pop and. Yeah. songwriting so it's funny you know, why <laughs> yeah I don't know but but really good stuff come, can come out of it but I think um, I just found I think that was one trip where I went and I did feel I remember just feeling a little bit far from home I think it took me a little while mm. to get my head around travel and also find the best thing you can do is to involve people so for me when I started traveling for promoting the album so the other side of the coin and I was able to travel with my friend Lisa, who was doing my hair and makeup, then it was fun. Then it's like, okay, I've got a friend now. So, and we still do think, you know, she was with me last week on a trip and it's like, ah, that, that completely flips the script about how you're feeling. But those beginning bits of writing the album and, you know, amassing songs and then trying to kind of tell a story in an album is so much harder in pop music. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Murder on the Dance Floor, you, you've already given us a hint. It started from the beginning with you and mm-hmm. Greg and, mm-hmm. and you suddenly had this song 
And I guess he puts down a sort of rough base, doesn't he? Or did, do, where do you get the phone Here's call at that point, Guy? Sh- okay, sh- should I? Uh, yeah, I'd love to I hear I your story of it. What I remember of it is as far because I, Jeremy Wheatley, who was at that, because I wasn't really, the funny thing is, this was a period when I wasn't really a bass player. Oh. Anyway, I can't, I was, no, I, I, I mean, I'm, you know, still playing, but I, I had my studio at the town. He was a comedian. And I was just writing. Yeah. I was writing musicals with Gary. I was writing music for TV. And, and I, you know, I still play. And I get, used to get sessions from just being in the townhouse. The only regular work I had at that point was Jeremy Wheatley. God bless him, Jeremy. And, but the funny thing with working for Jeremy was I used to get the feeling it wasn't that he'd be trying to finish a mix and you think, I just can't get this to sit right. And it'll, I could do it, it'll take me about five hours. Or I could get Guy in, mm. he'll do it in about an hour and it'll be fine. So I was always this thing of like, wouldn't it be great to have Guy on this? It'll just be like, if I get Guy in, <laughs> I can be out of here by five. No, but and it is genius so, because it really brought the song together. It didn't, it didn't well, sound it worked, like I, it did I, I, I'm, Listen, I'm, it's still the fastest thing I've ever done. Yeah. Right, it, it's the literally the first thing I played was that line. Wow. It literally fell out of the bass. And I... And I think I did it because I think you'd actually kind of made the record. Yes. He was just doing a radio mix. He was doing additional So production. the record was done. Yeah, but it sounded yeah. quite different before, before Jeremy got involved, actually. So that part of the song's story is hugely significant because it, that's basically what made it disco. It wasn't really like that before. Right. So, yeah, go I'm and, so um, glad that go all on, happened. Go, go on, Sophie. So, go, well, and it was in Steve Dewberry's studio, wasn't it? Because I had my little studio down, down in the basement mm-hmm. of the townhouse. And, and, and Jeremy literally knocked on my door and said, would you come and play bass <laughs> on this thing for me? I went, yeah, sure. So I literally opened my door and walked two feet, three feet across the corridor. Perfect. And there was you standing in the studio. Y- you wo- you walked with on, your three and feet. And it fell out. Hang on, you walked with your three feet. Across the street. <laughs> oh, three feet, yeah. It was always awkward. It was always awkward. Jake, Jake the paint. Uh, yeah, no, let's just pick right Betsy off left. the wall. Pick <laughs> Betsy off the wall, stepped across the studio, and then that bass line fell out. Gorgeous. So is, is that the only version that came out, or did the original ever come out as well, Sophie? That was the only version that came out, that version. And, uh, yeah, hugely significant. And... Uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's it all roads lead to bass. I end up marrying a bass player, so you know it's very much part of everything I do. You're like you're like the Joni Mitchell of of dance pop, oh, like that. If I had a penny for every that time that was said to me, have a whole penny really? right now. Why, why, why did you say that, well, guy? The, I can't. What's the connection? Because Joni Mitchell was the great champion of bass players, wasn't she? She discovered Jaco Pastorius. Mm-hmm. She married Larry Klein. Oh, she made God. an album about Charlie Mingus. Mm. So, but so, but so, 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 so exactly the same. Exactly. So he doesn't like you, though. She's already told me that. <laughs> um, so, so. But anyway, okay, I also I do want to say that it, that it is, and that's why I loved when we had the cross pollination thing during lockdown because you're amazing kitchen disco, which I used to love plugging when. Mm-hmm. when um, and so, because I did murder on the dance floor in my YouTube videos, then yeah. you were doing like a prayer, and I was there. Yeah. And it's and it's nice because murder on the dance floor, like I said, has probably now topped, um, topped like a prayer as as my great pop moment. Oh so, come oh, on, I, though, like a prayer, that. like literally one of the best pop records ever, and I cover it like pretty much every gig I do now, and I love it because to me it's like because of you playing bass on bass, it's like. They're kind of cousins. <laughs> like, yeah. my, like my song's related to that song. So that's nice. <laughs> all right, all right. Now get off. You've overstayed your welcome. <laughs> I know. I'm not talking to you, Sophie. I'm talking to her. <laughs> um, 
you went out with George Michael, didn't you? I mean, you didn't go out with George Michael. <laughs> no, God, I didn't no. date him. You went on tour with George Michael. I did. Time. I supported him on eight dates. And then I feel sad because people ask me about it. And my anecdotes are a little bit small because I didn't actually get to meet him. But um, I did really? get to hear his voice every night, which was just sensational. Uh, but yeah, he, he was going through a phase of being incredibly private. So he would just go into his room. He had one of those corridor blocking sort of curtain things you couldn't see into his room when you walk past by accident um I never even saw you know the back of him walking somewhere he was just keeping himself to himself and then pop up and sing every night but his voice but he found it incredibly difficult didn't he just being on tour they used to do everything they could to make it he just it was just really yeah that would make sense and at the time I'd yeah. my uh, eldest wasn't very old and I remember there was one night where they said after tonight's show, George can see you to say hello. And I was like, I have to go home tonight because it's the only night I'll be home, you know, of this weekend or whatever. So I, I chose my baby over George Michael, which I thought. But was, know, was Richard the always in, the, in your band from then on? No, it? no, he wasn't touring with me then at all, actually. So Richard and I met when I had my first ever solo tour and I needed a band. So I met him in, in the audition room. So he did that first tour with me and then another tour with me. And then when we started dating things were taking off for him with the feeling so he went and did that so actually when I was doing my sort of third fourth and even yeah but he didn't work with me again really till around the fifth album actually yes yeah, so there was quite a long bit where he was off doing his thing and I was doing mine separately because you stayed in that dance world for quite a while I mean mm. I, I, I absolutely love the thing you did with Freemasons I, lo I love the oh, heartbreak me too. oh yeah yeah, yeah 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 so good that's one of my I mean, favourites actually we, also I must say when I moved to Brighton it was through Richard that introduced me to James yeah. from the Freemasons who's what, still one of my greatest friends oh, in the world he's such a day, lovely so man so talented he's amazing so yeah that's something else to thank you for yeah, how, did, no, how, how, did, how did that one come about was that another sort of like did the record companies make these suggestions or were you have you now got your super list that you, you yeah I think record companies Kathy can Dennis, put people exactly. yeah I think people can you know you can be put together with people but actually like like you guys know like we've been talking about already so much just in our conversation so much of this is about who you get on with you know who becomes friends with you how much fun you have how easy it is to work together and then there's a happy moment that I think that can happen where you look around when you're working and you realise everybody you're working with, you've actually got a relationship with outside of work. I think that's kind of what you're hoping for, especially if you do mm -hmm. something creative, because for it just to be a sort of transactional relationship doesn't really quite work because you have to bring yourself into the room. You have to bring your experiences into what you're hoping to put into the music and your performance. So I think for me, like the fact that I now work with so many people where they've got those relationships. So with the Freemasons, I was working with uh, a lovely songwriter called Biff, or Richard Standard, his real name is, oh, yeah, and yeah. Um, we always had such a lovely time together. And he had moved to Brighton and he knew the Freemasons and I was aware of their work because I love their sound. So we got a couple of backing tracks from them and we did um, Heartbreak and another song called Bittersweet. And through that I met um, with James and Russell and, uh, oh yeah, just a really lovely like kind of halcyon period because for me they're, the way that they came at the, you know, the sonics of dance music and pop is exactly the same as the things I liked. So mm -hmm. I was very happy working with them. But what was sort of a shocking in a way for, for all your disco dance fans was you suddenly sort of changed and broke away and mm. decided to make an album, which I, oh, I, Ed, I, I love. Folk with, album. With Ed, <laughs> with, with Ed Harcourt, you know, yeah. and, a, and just one producer, one other songwriter, folk 
kind yeah. of Eastern based, European, you know, feel. I mean, yeah. utterly a, different style. Yeah. Um, <laughs> were there were there lots of people screaming, "No, don't do it." Um, I don't. I've got no idea, but just for sort of context of the yeah, didn't ask. Yeah, I, well, you know why, what? I sort why of did didn't. you Why did you make that choice? So. I think there's a couple of things at play. One thing is I have a tendency to do, run in one direction and then kind of like a pinball, like boing to the other side of it, really. I kind of quite like flipping things. I think obviously going from indie to dance was one of those. And then when I got to my fourth album, that was probably my most clubby. So I'd always been the sort of pop disco dance mood. And then by the time I got to the fourth album, it was working Make with Calvin. Yeah, so I did it at Calvin Harris, Armin Van Buren, like proper like clubby DJs. Um, so I'd sort of like gone quite, quite far into that. And then during that time, I'd also left Universal. So they'd given me back that album. So I released that album under my own steam, but I wasn't with Universal anymore. I was 34 years old and I felt like I was kind of, everything had got a little bit predictable in my world. I was singing lots of corporate gigs and everything was fine, but it wasn't really challenging me hugely. And I thought... I think I need to completely pull the rug out from underneath me, actually. I think I need to just go for broke and do something completely different. So I got to this point where I decided that in order to make another record, I was going to have to self-fund it. So that was the option I chose for making Wonderlust. So I didn't have a record company. There was no one I needed to play stuff to. There was no one that needed to give me the thumbs up. So I just had an absolute ball making a record where I just lost myself in the process of it. And I didn't, I was like, right, no dance, no disco, no four on the floor. I want to make something completely different. And I want to tell stories. I want to do things I can't do in the world of pop and dance. Pop and dance is so brilliant at dealing with a here and now. I'm in love. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm feeling flirtatious. I'm excited. I'm scared. I'm all those heady, heady emotions. But you can't really be reflective you can't go, oh, there was a moment at some point in the last year where I felt this. It doesn't work in dance music. Dance is like, come on, tell me what's going on in like your you know, your frontal lobe or whatever. So I was like, I need to tell stories. So Ed and I, we wrote, the first thing we did was a waltz. How, <laughs> how a, did you meet them? <laughs> I was going to say, yeah, I was wondering what came to the chicken and egg. Okay. Um, Ed wanted to do that. Or? So I knew of Ed before I met him properly, really. he's a, He's such a like... He's an amazing guy, very talented musician and a proper character, just capable yeah. of creating beauty with his music and absolute like chaos on a night out. You know, just one of these guys you hear about. <laughs> and he's in a band with Richard as we speak. Yes, exactly. Uh, so yeah. Loop Guru. Loop Guru. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. And um, so I I'd, I'd sort of heard of him and then I'd met his wife, Gita, and then uh, I was working with a producer called Dimitri, Dimitri Tikovoy and he uh, was doing some stuff with Ed and he and Ed did a little backing track for me which I ended up writing on top of and it became a bonus track on my fourth album so that was the first thing we'd sort of done but it was sort of remote and then after that um, we just did our paths across socially and I think it was probably Richard to be fair he probably said you should try writing a song with Ed and Ed was open to writing with other people so we went to his little studio which was then on Beethoven Street um, in uh, sort of Kilburn Way and I said, right, let's just write a waltz. Nothing will happen with this. We're like, well, this is not for anything. Let's just write a song I can't normally write. So we wrote about this witch who, um, when she takes your photograph, she steals your soul. And it became this song called Love is a Camera. And I just walked away feeling really nourished. And like, God, that felt good. So I just said to him, I think we just follow this. I think that's that's song one. 
And Wonderlust was one of the most sure-footed experiences of songwriting I've ever had because we didn't have any extra songs. We wrote 12 songs. Those songs were the album. Um, my manager, you know, look, I've been with the same manager, Derek, for a very long time. It's probably approaching 20 years. Um, and he's been incredibly supportive, but he didn't really get what I was up to with Wonderlust. Fair enough. He was worried about me. He wanted to make sure that what I was doing was going to be commercially successful. And, you know, his pop artist is like, hey, I'm, a, I'm just doing some uh, Bavarian waltzes over here. Don't mind me. <laughs> let's mind. So he was like, maybe we get an A&R. Like, let's, let's pay an independent A&R. And I was like, you know what? No. Look, I've, done, I've worked for 10 years with Universal. I've put in lots of work. This is my equivalent of buying myself a sports car. I'm going to buy myself an album. No yeah. one's going to tell me what they want to do with it. So I kind of like like went a little bit hibernated, really. Richard was very involved, incredibly supportive. And then so we wrote the album. We went into a studio. We recorded the whole thing in 10 days. Uh, and it was just really bliss. I absolutely loved wow. it. And then I went and did Strictly Come Dancing. So it was like a really weird year for me. But 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 it was just one of those years where it was all about what happens if I do the thing that's like a little bit scary? Like what's the worst that can happen? Maybe it won't work out. I've probably got time to dust myself down and do something else. I, was, I don't know if this was around that period because I remember seeing you playing a, a benefit gig with Ed for a boxing gym mm-hmm. on Harrow Road. Yes. Yes, we did do that singing in the ring, like literally performing in the ring. ring. Yeah, you were literally in the (laughs) ring. It was great. Yeah, that was a little, I think that was probably after we'd done the second album. But Ed and I, we had, it was just a weird thing. We we were really happy writing together. And we decided, right, this is album one, we're going to do three. So even before we'd finished writing Wonderlust, we were like, this is one of three. I don't know why we had that rule, but we did. And actually, making some rules is quite good for for making your brain work a different way. So I enjoyed that. No, but I, I love these albums. They do get played quite a bit in our house as well. And the ah, depth, of, depth of them, but it's your lyric writing, I think, that's really powerful. You know, they're, they're, you mentioned storytelling, but there really is a sense. I mean, the last album you've done with him, Hannah, I mean, there's some, it's an incredible, it's almost a concept album, really, isn't it? Based around what, what's gone on in your life. Definitely. Recently, well, there's a lovely the thing death. you said about it, which is, because it's, what is this Japanese word for blossom? Mm. But this idea of, of like it's it's someone's imagining a place that they haven't been to that they are going to. Or some, yeah, sort of something exactly. Like that. So yeah. when I started writing Hannah, I was about to go to Japan for the first time. And uh, so I wrote some songs based on what I thought the trip would be like. So I knew I'd be going with my mum and my eldest boy. So I wrote a song called Tokyo about about how it would feel when we were there. But I hadn't been there yet. And then you have that weird bit where you go there and then every night when I'd get into my bed at night the song would be kind of going around my head so it sort of becomes infused a bit like a sort of deja vu dream kind of feeling but I think as well Hannah was really about uh how music works for me so on the one hand it was all you know in and out of pandemic lots of fun Uh, so on the one hand you know you've got heavy news and stuff going on and my lovely stepdad died very early on in 2020 so you've got all that infused while I'm also doing these crazy kitchen discos with Richard and the kids putting on sequin cat suits like, hey, here's some cover versions. Here's some disco music just because it made me feel better. Like what a tonic. But Hannah was the other thing I needed. I needed a place to put all the other emotions, things that were maybe a little bit more introspective, a uh, little bit more introvert. And I mean, aren't we lucky that we get to do that when you have a day where you think I've got this strange feeling of being a bit discombobulated and then you can just mm. put it into a song and then like, 
God, I feel so much better. It's like proper got like therapy but, but aspects for me, I think. Some some beautiful lyrics. I think there's ones, because you weren't meant to be on that trip to Japan. I was were not. You? And, That's and right. And you even begin a song by saying, you know, I wasn't meant to be here or something yeah, like that. I wasn't but, supposed to come. I wasn't yeah, supposed so, to come. Uh, yeah. Because it was your stepfather that was meant to go on that trip. So, That's right. You know, and I think there's that, that you know, journey that you take us on that was, uh, that, you know, that almost a diary that you're opening for us in that album is is exquisitely done oh thank you but also like what i just feel like it was such a nice thing that i had that because um after everything i found the first aspect of the pandemic so uh, i was so paralyzed i couldn't think of any new ideas so when i started to sort of come into songwriting again and and work that muscle again it was so lovely to have that and yeah i mean i know you know people probably find the idea of you know, a pop album that involves grief a bit like, oh, that's, a, is that a happy bedfellow? But actually I think music's long been a place where you can get juxtaposition and, 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 and beauty and all those things. And it doesn't, it's hugely uplifting doesn't have to be sad well. to be, yeah. to have, to have all those emotions. So yeah, I think that song, and there's another one as well called Until the Wheels Fall Off. And that was some of those words were directly lifted out of the memorial that John had written for himself so it was the words that he knew would be spoken after he died and a family friend read them out and I thought that some of it was just so beautiful but also so much of it was about giving all of us permission to really live and there's such generosity in that isn't there to say to everybody you leave behind oh my goodness life is wonderful seize it light your you know the posh scented candle drink the good wine don't save things for this other day like it's all about now. Uh, your kitchen disco was amazing, you know. When, when, it was amazing. It was a real, so it strange, was a real, wasn't it? real tonic for us. I remember, <laughs> you know, our lockdown family looking forward to those Fridays or Aww. whatever. It was Friday, you know. And, and, yeah. and quick, Sophie's on. Let's 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 let's. That's so sweet. Did, and like, probably you know, going, what's what's happening now? Who's climbing the wall behind her? Yeah, and also, you know, <laughs> people people are often concerned about you know getting their kids on social media. This was like, you know, what we're, all, we're this is our family. This is who we are. There was Absolutely. Yeah, I never involved. The, so it was Richard's idea. <laughs> um, I didn't know what to do with myself. We'd gone into sort of like an early lockdown. One of the kids had a cough, and you probably can remember it was that era where, like, if someone had a cough, everybody had to like shut down because it might be that cough, and then you're at home for two weeks. Like, oh great. Um, so I was already feeling like, oh no, why don't I keep going with my piano lessons? Why don't I keep my guitar? I can't accompany myself on anything. This is rubbish. And then Richard said, well, why don't you? sing some of your songs with the backing tracks and we'll just do a gig here and I was like that is such a crazy idea but I do not have a better one and I also got nothing else on so sure why not um but you started off with your own tracks and you you had a lot of covers which were things that you'd played that you'd done well again they were rules so, so you had a, I would do yeah I would do um <coughs> some songs of mine that I did every week and then I would do always do like an an older one and then maybe a kind of like slightly deep cut one <coughs> and then a cover version of something as well and that was so good for my head because it gave me something to learn so every every week I'd be like doing all the usual domestic stuff and looking at the heaviness on the news but then also trying to memorize you know spoonful of sugar or something <laughs> and <laughs> and then um, and then we would do this thing which I used to call the after party because I was like actually I want to be able to sing other songs that maybe aren't the big like disco happy dancey songs but maybe I'd do like 
I don't know, a song from Moana or I do like A&E by Goldfrapp or just something a bit like yeah. in another space. And it just made me happy. It made my heart happy. I loved having people come round. I loved the connection. I loved the immediacy mm-hmm. of seeing the comments, just that connection. Like I didn't have any idea how important that was to me in my equilibrium until it was taken away. And I was like, right, I need it. I just need it. So yeah, it became really important uh, to me. How, how many hits was it getting? How many views was it getting? Well, it's hard to say, but we've got a friend called Chris Salmon who, um, he was kind of like the other person that was really helping us. So Richard and I were the ones at home. Richard did an amazing job on all the technical side. And then we'd send the music files to Chris Salmon who would upload them onto the socials because that's not something I've got the skill set for. And um, Chris worked out that he said the reach was somewhere around 40 million. But I don't really know wow. what that means. Like, I don't know if that means God, like people could wow. literally just swipe past it or whatever. Uh, I think it, it just means that that was kind of like in the ballpark of how far reaching it went. It's quite yeah. mind blowing, well, especially when we weren't seeing anybody. <laughs> like it's literally yeah. seeing no but, one. Because what's fun, the, the thing you're saying that getting people to do things, because everyone was locked down. When I started doing my videos, mm. my thing went, and I put, did my first one, then it was rubbish and put it up. And like 10 editors got in really? touch and just said, let me edit your oh, that's video. that's cool. Let me do it. Yes. Yeah, it was fantastic. Because everyone, because we're stuck at yeah. home. We haven't got anything Include, to do. Including me. So, I wanted to edit him out of it. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, but obviously, if one person's watching it on the phone, the whole family's watching it. Because that's how we were watching it. Us and, yeah. and, and our three or kids. people on their yeah. own. or how, It was there for however. I mean, I understood that for most people, they'd put it on, put lean their phone up on the side, go and, you know, make their supper, whatever they're up to. Yeah, yeah. But I think it's just having that, yeah, that contact with people just became so good for my sanity, even though it looked like insanity. Let's talk about Saltburn. How did did that happen? (laughs) So, um, must have been about a year ago, I got an email, you know, a standard one asking for permission to use Murder on Dance Floor in a film. It just said a few details. Film's called Saltburn, written and directed by Emerald Fennell. And that they wanted to use all of the song and it would be a character dancing to the whole thing naked through the halls of this house. And that was kind of it, really. And I thought, oh, that sounds quite fun. And how nice that she wants to use the song because I'd watched her previous film, Promising Young Woman, and thought it was really good. So I was like, oh, that's nice. Mm. And then I I actually forgot all about it because, you know, you don't know what's going to happen with things. And I didn't, I forgot to tell Richard and I didn't tell my manager, actually. So when these little murmurs started happening last summer about the film and about the soundtrack uh, I had to then sort of explain to them what I knew and uh, yeah and we got invited to a screening well how did you go like uh, uh, Richard you, get, you got flown out to LA didn't you? Did, hang on did you, did you did explain yeah. it yeah. by going Richard yeah. there's a naked man right <laughs> and <laughs> well, he was like what's this thing about your the songs in um, actually it's actually even more peculiar than that so basically Richard had gone along to our youngest's end of nursery picnic in the park and one of the other dads is a guy called Mark Robinson who was he works at Universal doing the soundtrack so he said oh the soundtrack's actually really impressive and then Richard's like I'm sorry I don't know what you're talking about so between the two of them they were like oh we should probably organize a screening you should see it so um there's often a kind of more like I don't know social aspect to these things isn't there and um yeah trotted along not knowing anything about the movie so watched it watched the screening with my mum and my eldest boy Sonny and my brother and his girlfriend Richard and it's quite an extraordinary film it was quite uh, a strong like quite intense for like a Tuesday morning at 10am Yeah, but yeah. we all really loved it <laughs> we did all really love it and uh, and by the time I got to the end I'd sort of forgotten that's why I was there actually and then Murder starts playing and, and it's 
It's really hard, isn't it, to be objective if it's like a song you know so well. It's hard to like see it bedded in. But I did think, I love the fact he's dancing to it naked. Like it's so hedonistic. It's so liberating. Like, how brilliant. But I, did, I, I didn't actually think it was going to do in, as much as it's done with the film or the song. I just, I've got a really bad antenna for that kind of thing. So I did just em, I liked did it. Emerald, did Emerald want the song? Did she write that into the script? She did, yeah, she did. Because I, I actually met her for coffee straight after the screening and she was like, there was literally no other song. It had to be that song. So she was like, I didn't know I have another plan for if you'd said no. And I think looking at the film, I think she's clearly one of those directors who, you know, infuses yeah, yeah. the soundtrack in you know it's sealed when she's writing because all the music has really got such um you know proper placement and it sounds great and it really works like they're, they're very well tessellated aren't they the two i think yeah. well yeah i think i mean you're very lucky to, to have written a great classic disco song with the word murder <laughs> in it i mean who knew that was going to yeah, that out. is going to come back and bite me because you know <laughs> as soon as i die yeah. that is going to be the joke I used to think I used, I used to think I had to just not die in a nightclub. I was like, so long as I don't get killed in a nightclub, I'll be fine. But now I've realised, don't be dark. It doesn't matter. I could die like in my sleep, 110, and they'll be like, did you hear she died? And someone will go, was it murder on the dance floor? It literally won't oh matter how God. I die. It's oh just, just going to happen. Oh and, and even... Sophie oh Ellis-Bexter, they killed the groove. There you go. Oh, oh, see, how annoying oh, is that? Sorry. I can't I'm escape sorry. it. I can't yeah. escape my pun future. <laughs> my pun future. Yeah, or now, or now, of course, with your great success on this song, and you've got your, you might have a, your own private jet, and it, we call Groove Jet, of course. <laughs> yeah. But, um, you, uh, you know, what we all, what, the jet <laughs> might have to wait. Aww. What we, what we all want in, because we all get, we all look for what's called sync synchronizations, where we, yeah. you know, as songwriters, your music gets used on a film, and mm -hmm. you know, I've had that happen quite a lot. But what I mm -hmm. haven't had happen is is where apart from on Grange Hill actually they did they, I think they danced the true because because it was important to them uh, but I haven't had it in part of the story to get it as part of the yeah, story yeah that's unusual isn't it so unusual and obviously this has blown up because now I mean I had Richard texting me every other day telling me how it was <laughs> you know number 14 in the global chart sorry he, he went so crazy on stats I had to tell him to stop it was actually making me feel a bit sick <laughs> I was like I can't I can't do it. I'm not very good with that kind of thing because... Oh, but, oh no, well, you need to hire Gary. Gary is literally the Bill Frindle. Yeah, um, <laughs> she doesn't know who Bill Frindle is. Yeah. Bill Frindle, he's, he's Mr. St he does all the cricket stats. Yeah. Thank Gary you, I did not Mr. know stats. who that was. I was like, uh... No, he's long, he's long yeah, dead, sorry, he's long sorry. dead. Oh, yeah, it that. was murder, murder on his the poor cricket. wife. His poor wife. <laughs> uh, but but it is has been extraordinarily enormous, hasn't it? I mean, you know, it's been pretty wild. America, I'm not going to lie. Like it's been, like, I overused the word bonkers in January a lot, and um, I think it's been really exciting, and I've loved so much of it. But I think you know, and I'm sure you both can. That feeling, I don't know if everybody feels like this about things, but when things go into accelerate for me, I just I just need to kind of have a minute to sort of work out how I can kind of be part of the journey rather than just be like grabbed by the scruff of the neck and dragged along. So I was like, hang on a minute, I need to try and think clearly through this. What does this really mean? What do I what do I want? How does this work with all the things I already had planned? And I do feel like a lot more steady on my feet now. But yeah, initially I was just a bit like, ah, I don't really know what this all means yet. And it's been so funny doing interviews, you know, in for, like in Europe again to promote murder. And so many of them are like, 
so what have you been doing for 20 years? <laughs> it's just like, oh, congratulations. I got asked yesterday, so is, is this song being a hit again? Good revenge, because we hadn't heard from you for so long. Oh. And I'm like, honestly, oh. like, um, Jesus. no, it's not revenge. It's about, the one weekly. question I will ask, have you had to mind your 20 something year old self recently well i i do lots of gigs where i sing on my own and i'll sing to a backing track and so in the backing track is all the bvs that i recorded then so i've already been so aware of this thing of like singing harmonizing with with me half my life ago so bonkers you know when you're in the studio recording stuff you never think oh you know 20 years from now i'll be i'll be doing the top line of what i'm doing that that doesn't occur to you so yeah that that hasn't been lost on me before now and I do think that's pretty wild but what's also really funny is that because this song has come back from 22 years ago when I've been doing promotion recently obviously to the people inviting me onto things they felt it's like free season to use any photograph of me that's existed at any point in that timeline (laughs) so I have no idea which version of me will greet me when I do things and it's like Uh oh I remember that shoot I did like 14 years ago 17 years ago 21 years ago it's just so strange you're not expecting to see yourself you know then and then be like talking about it now it's it's pretty Yeah. yeah Mind-blowing. Well, like, well, let me tell you the th- how it's changed my life, mm-hmm. which I like, which is that my social media feeds are now just full of young bass yeah. players. It's great. A lot of, lot of people who are um, showing you how to play the bass line. To well, on how the dance cool is floor, that? Which is, it's so I love cool. That. It's wonderful. Yeah, I love all that. Well, thank you so very, very much. Yeah, all that is I really love seeing all the people dancing to it. Plus, I've checked my PPL, and and that, that's going to be very nice as well. So, thank you very, oh, very much for that. I well, that's pr- good. Probably Pe- buy you dinner. People keep thinking I'm going to be super rich because <laughs> of the streaming, but that's yeah. a whole other conversation. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> when you're talking about pictures from your, um, you don't know what pictures going to greet uh-huh. you. I remember a friend of mine, Leo Abraham, sent me when he was on tour with Ed Harcourt. Mm-hmm. Once and they were touring in America and they had no budget. They were literally just playing toilets. And so because they couldn't really ask for anything in the rider, they couldn't ask for nice food or anything like that. One stipulation Ed had was that the dressing room had to have a photograph of Ollie Reed with a beard on the wall. <laughs> so at least that one thing they had to look forward to, whatever gig they got to, was what picture of Ollie Reed with a beard is the game to be on the That's wall? a good game to play, isn't it? I like that. Oh, yeah, my God. Exactly. That's very so has, has, it, has it changed? What, has it thrown you off course of what you had planned to do next? Actually, no. There's a weird amount of serendipity because because I'd finished... Um, so Hannah being the third of the three albums that Ed and I said we would write, I'd already been thinking even before Hannah was released, right, what do I do next? I thought, I think I'll go back to the other thing that I really love. So I think I'm going to make another pop album. I'm going to make a pop dance disco album, just like I did when I started. So I'd already started putting in the diary sessions, songwriting sessions with people I'd worked in with, you know, worked on with my first, second, third album. So there's a weird sort of synchronicity with all of that. And and how nice, because it puts like such good momentum and spring in your step to feel like, ah, this is the right thing at the right time. And believe me, if I didn't want to make that kind of music, I wouldn't be doing it. I just would do something else. But it does feel like, yeah, I'm actually in the mood for that. So I've been trying to think about how I do that that also reflects who I am and where I'm at. So I've got to make sure that it's a a, a pop dance album that is, you know, true to the fact that I'm a 44-year-old woman. So 
Let's see what that sounds like. I <laughs> haven't figured that bit out yet. <laughs> are you on tour coming up? Um, so I was already about to go off to Europe. So I'm doing that in March. Um, that's only my second European tour in 20 years. Actually, I did the first one last year. So going wow. back again, which would be lovely. That was already on sale before pre-Saltburn. And then I've got a lovely tour supporting Nile Rogers and Chic in June and July. Some festivals. And then there's a few new things popping in. So... I'm sort of squidging into the gaps, really, with travel to other countries, uh, places I haven't been to for a while. Possibly some new ones, like we're looking at maybe doing some dates in America, which would be cool because I've never done that. So, yeah, just sort of feeling my way, really, and just trying to seize it all, I suppose, because, yeah, I don't think I think it's all a bit once in a lifetime. So let's see what can come out of it. No, it's lovely talking to you. Thank you, Sophie. Fantastic. My pleasure. Brilliant. (laughs) So nice. Really, really great. And uh, congratulations again. It's all brilliant, you know, and it's yeah. so lovely to be a tiny part. Oh, yeah, it's great. hugely. Really. I feel like um, I feel like everything I do has got loads of people that are connected with it, though. I don't really do anything in isolation, you know. It's always a team, really. Cheers, guys. Oh, it's so nice. That was nice. So nice. Yeah, you know, really a fantastic couple as well. And what she's, you know, and their family, you know, they've got five boys. I mean, I know, you know I know. Th- we, we had, we, we met them when our first boy was young and then they had another boy born like a, a, a few days um, uh, after or before our middle child. And we both called each other to, to say we'd just had a boy and we both said, and it's called Kit. So uh, they're both called Kit, and uh, and then but then she we had another one almost at the same time, and then they went on and carried on and carried on having no. having boys. So you've you've both had children in Kit form. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god! Why do I do this? I don't know why I do this podcast. It's so painful. I don't know why you do. It's so painful. Um, okay, I would like to make one little point, which is I, I I need a shout out to Jeremy Wheatley to say how much I used to love working with him, and that might have come over as um, as as I didn't really appreciate what you know he, him getting me in as much as I actually did. So you're amazing, Jeremy. I love with you. your three feet. Anyway, Brilliant. until then, it's good night from me, and it's good night from them. Rock on Tours is produced by Gimme Sugar Productions for Warner Music Group UK. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.